Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian's not optional. Cause when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest story ever told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction. Yeah. And the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our depth, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. Yeah. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. And welcome, welcome. This is Theology Matters with the Pelus. I am not 
Devin Pellu. If you have been listening to this show for a very long time, you probably figured that out just right now. Um, I My name is Letitia Wong. I am a fellow member of the True Radio Network. I host the show True Life Fridays Radio. That will be on tomorrow for those of you who are interested in knowing when that is. But today it is Theology Matters with not the Pelus, but with Letitia Wong. Welcome, welcome. And you can find our Facebook page, which I encourage you all to go visit. Uh, it's called Theology Matters with the Pelus on our Facebook. And uh, give it a like and follow the sequence of shows on this program. The, we've got some really awesome stuff going on. Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to talk really deep uh, and significant things uh, so Devin has tasked me with the job of handling this really important topic, and we're going to talk about two really important topics today. Uh, one with a guest of mine who has been so instrumental in educating fellow Christians about New Age beliefs, New Age practices, things that creep into uh, our church practices, actually, and she's going to let us know exactly what her organization is all about and how she is instrumental in the field of apologetics, Christian apologetics. Uh, welcome to the show, uh, Marsha Montenegro. Hey, Marsha, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, Letitia. It's nice to have you as the guest host, so that's good. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I um, I have um, a ministry, full-time ministry, Christian Answers for the New Age, that I've been in since full-time since 1998. actually did it for part-time for a few years before then, and um, the goal is to educate Christians about the New Age, which includes the occult, and also to um, share the truth of Jesus Christ with those who are in the New Age and the occult um, when such opportunities arise, and through my website, um, interactions uh, by email, etc., and on Facebook, so uh, that's what I do in my ministry. It keeps me busy researching a lot. I read a lot. I have written quite a bit. A lot has been published in magazines. I have a book also. And uh, let me give my website real qu- quickly. Uh, yes. It's ChristianAnswersForTheNewAge.org. That's all one word, Christian Answers for the New Age. And then it's .org because I have a lot of articles there. And also I um, speak um, at various places, uh, churches or women's groups, women's retreats, youth groups, etc. So I keep pretty busy because the New Age is really, really vast and it encompasses a lot of different areas and a lot of it has infiltrated uh, mainstream culture. So trying to track things. And and I have to educate myself on things that are that are happening that are new or try to find out about them. And a lot of the ways I find out about stuff is actually people asking me questions. So because um, they'll they'll come across something, a website or a person or a book or something, and ask me about it. And mm-hmm. that's often how I'll find out about it. So I always appreciate questions. Right. Yes. So, so if you are tonight, listening live. Um, let me quickly give our phone number out to anybody who might be listening who wants to call in and might ask a question. The number to call in is 760-542-3907. That's 760 
542-3907. If you'd like to talk to either myself, guest, or either of our guests today, uh, we will take your call. And so let's get back to um, some of the things that you get asked, Marsha. How, how do you find out about what's on people's minds and what what is? on people's minds in the last, I would say, maybe, yo, oh, maybe in the last few years? Um, well, quite a bit. There's always the um, uh, ongoing interest in the whole issue of haunted houses, um, ghosts, can we hear from dead people? That's a constant issue. There's always um, an interest in astrology mm-hmm. and... You know, what's the deal with astrology? Is there any truth to it? Uh, Those areas, there's quite a few questions on. And then there's a lot of questions on Eastern religious stuff that's in the culture, particularly um, Eastern-based forms of meditation, which is very different from biblical meditation. So I'm I'm asked about that quite a bit. And um, asked about a lot of alternative um, healing methods uh, which come from the New Age, um, especially the energy, the energy healing, like Reiki and therapeutic touch, which okay. really goes back to the Theosophical Society. So um, I'm asked about these areas quite a bit. I mean, really, you know, I, I get asked about a lot of other things, but you know, there tend to be over the past few years. So I have been you know, answering that and have more articles on that, uh, those areas. <clears throat> and um, what's come up recently is that Christianity Today had an article online that was promoting something called the Enneagram. Now, I already had written an article on the Enneagram, I think it was in 2011, because it came to my attention through... I don't remember exactly how. I think somebody sent me something to show that it was being promoted in some churches. Mm. And I already knew about it, but I got very concerned, and I thought, okay, this is a topic I need to write an article on. Um, There have been some articles written. Most of the articles I had seen were published in hard copy magazines or or standalone little journals, and there wasn't a lot online from a Christian viewpoint. So I did a lot of um, research, and I wrote an article on it. This is what I do a lot of times when there's something that is beginning to trend, and it seems to be significant, and there's not a lot, or maybe there's no Christian information um, on the internet on it beyond maybe you know a paragraph or something if that then I end up writing an article you know I did that with feng shui and I did it with reiki because I mm-hmm. couldn't find any Christian information on those on those two areas um, so this the same thing with the Enneagram so I wrote a fairly detailed article which is on my website then when the Christianity Today article came out I of course read that and then I wrote out a response to it, which is not on my website. It's um, it's on Facebook. Um, but Actually, I don't even know if it's on Facebook. <laughs> I think I put it in something on Facebook, but I, I probably need to put it out more as an article and maybe on my website. So that's what I wanted to address tonight since the Christianity um, Today article was, is fairly recent. 
and right. maybe maybe six weeks ago or something. So I wanted to go ahead and say a little bit about what the Enneagram is and what Christianity Today was saying and my responses to some of the points in their article. Um, so yeah. should I go ahead and start with that? Please. Sure. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Um, by the way, the article in Christianity Today uh, is called What Kind of Sinful Are You? And that's the title, and it's by Laura Turner. So I want to mention that, uh, so I should, since I'm talking about their article. Um, the Enneagram, first of all, let me say it's a, it's like a chart. It's nine, has nine numbers, one, and the numbers one through nine. And then there's uh, lines going from each of those numbers to two other numbers. And if you go to my website and look at my article on the Enneagram, I have a, a graphic of it right there at the beginning of the article. Or you could just Google it under Google Images, and, and you would find a lot of examples of it. And what what this is being used for now and the way it's being promoted in the church is a, is a personality assessment, but they go a little beyond just a personality. They try to use it as a tool for self-understanding and understanding your sin tendencies. Um, so they even take it into the sin area. And this article particularly talked about that. Um, now, there's a lot of, of problems with using the Enneagram this way, and there's even more problems using it in the church. So I'm going to try to address the main ones because I can't address every every point. Okay. But uh, sure. first of all, people are probably wondering, you know, what, where, well, who made up this enneagram? You know, where did it, where did it come from? And it has some kind of uh, sketchy beginnings. In other words, um, no one knows for sure exactly. Originally started. There's some theories about it, um, but it came from a man named um, Gorgiev. And Gurdjieff was a, a a mystical kind of occult teacher. He called himself, I think, a mystical Christian, but he did not affirm any of the basic uh, essentials of the Christian faith. And um, he he had teachings based supposedly on his meetings with a lot of people in the East on his travels and actually wrote a book about it called Meetings with Remarkable Men, which was made into a movie, which I saw when I was in the New Age. I forgot to mention I was in the New Age for like 20 years. <laughs> I should have mentioned mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So um, I saw that movie as a New Ager. It was a very um, in- enticing and entrancing movie, I must say. Now, Gurdjieff had a couple of followers. Supposedly, Gurdjieff got this Enneagram from the Sufis. He was very, very interested in Sufism, which is, a mystical offshoot of Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a lot of people, a lot of hardcore pe- Muslims consider it heretical, so it's not it's not necessarily accepted within Islam. I think it depends on the what country you're in. I'm not an expert on Islam, but I know it's not always accepted. Um, so he, I think he claimed that's where it came from, and then his followers, uh, Uspensky in particular promoted the Enneagram in two of his books. Um, later, there was a man named Oscar Ichazo who was very heavily involved in uh, psychedelic drugs. 
and shamanism, and he claimed to be getting instructions from this um, disembodied entity um, mm-hmm. who was called Metatron. And um, he had students and followers who were following his teachings, and he was um, teaching things about the Enneagram. And one of his followers was a man named Naranjo, or Naranjo who was from Chile or studied with Ichazo in Chile. And this is the guy who made it into a psychological tool. Um, he taught it to a Jesuit named Bob Ox, who brought it into uh, the um, Catholic Church. And so it made its way through several people here and was turned into a semi-tool for personality analysis, but it never lost its goal of explaining your spiritual self. In other words, the Enneagram always had a focus on how to look at yourself spiritually. And what it is is that you are one of the nine numbers, and uh, each of them have a particular archetype. You know, the I, I can't even remember all the archetypes, but, you know, they have archetypes like the, you know, the um, maybe the thinker or, you know, the active person or, mm-hmm. you know, the nurturer and, and that kind of thing. And so whatever type you are, then... One, uh, another number is going to exemplify the worst of your attributes, and a different number will exemplify the best of your attributes, and that's how it supposedly works. But the Enneagram is much more than this, of course, and, um, the, for example, why is it nine, nine numbers? First of all, that's very arbitrary. I mean, why not have 12 personality types like Mm-hmm. You know, in astrology, <laughs> why not have, or why not eight, or why not five, or maybe 15? It's very arbitrary. There's no objective standard to base this on. Uh, nine is considered a divine number, supposedly in uh, Sufism, and that's what some people think that it came from that. It also has to do with uh, something called sacred geometry. And sacred geometry is a view that certain angles and shapes have an inherent meaning and power. So, um, you know, a triangle, there's a, a power in it. And this whole idea of the power of the pyramids that got very popular um, in the 60s and 70s, which was part of the New Age, is related to sacred geometry. Uh, feng Shui is related to sacred geometry. Sacred mm-hmm. geometry is definitely a non-biblical concept because you're trying to get a hidden meaning from um, something in creation, you know, the, a geometric shape. And um, anytime you try to read a hidden meaning into something, it's a form of divination. And then to think that there's a power in it, well, that's really uh, idolatry, and simple so Mm -hmm. it's it's extremely um occultic and esoteric it's not it's not christian and this is this is a lot what the enneagram is it's really a form of sacred geometry so the christian today article tried to downplay this and it based the person who wrote this based it on a book she read about the enneagram and the author of this book is a man named richard roar r-o- H.R., and this is problematic right away because Richard Rohr, uh, he's a um, 
he's a, a, a Franciscan friar, and he runs this center in Albuquerque, uh, New Mexico, but he promotes a lot of non-Christian people and ideologies. Uh, he, he promotes a pan, panentheism, that God is in everything. Okay. Uh, he promotes Buddhism, and he promotes New Age speakers at his conferences, and then he's perfectly okay with this. He's, uh, you know, he thinks it's great. So he's very interspiritual. He's very accepting of non-Christian spiritualities. And he wrote a book on the Enneagram, and that is partly what made it popular in the church because some of the people that are now called progressive Christians who were originally called the emergence um, mm-hmm. have become fans of Richard Rohr. And they got into the Enneagram, too. And at some of the emergent um, conferences, they were offering teachings on the Enneagram. This was several years ago. So that's one way it started to get into the church. Now, Richard War, let me just say a few more things about him, because if, if, you know, if he's written a book on the Enneagram, I think we should know what his theology is. He has said, and I've watched several interview, video interviews with him and read several interviews, within like that were published Jesus became the Christ okay that's a quote okay Jesus came in a moment of time to reveal what was eternally true that's a quote um the Christ was born at the moment of the big bang when God decided to materialize that's another quote <laughs> strictly mm, speaking it is not correct to say Jesus is God Jesus is a combination of God and human. Okay, now what he's saying here, he has this kind of strange theology. Um, And what it is, it's very New Age. It's a a distinction between Jesus and the Christ. And this is a New Age teaching. So you have Jesus the man, and then you have the Christ. And this is what Rohr seems to be saying, because these these quotes I read, that's, that's what they're saying. There's really no other way to take them. And he said this in more than one one video. He also talks about the cosmic Christ, which is another New Age concept. Um, In fact, there's a whole book on that by Matthew Fox, um, who's an Episcopal priest. It's called The Coming of the Cosmic Christ, a book which I have read. So here you have a man who has a new kind of a New Age view of Christ and who promotes non-Christian teachings, and he's, thinks the Enneagram is great. Well, that all makes sense in the context of his beliefs. Uh, But that doesn't make the book biblical. And it's almost as though the person reading this either doesn't know anything about Roar's views or assumes that he's a Christian. You know, that's positive of that. But I'm thinking that that may be be true. Um, So maybe she accepted this because she saw he was a Franciscan friar and assumed he's writing a Christian-type book. Uh, then they and either I'm out or Marsha. We lost the connection with Marsha. Marsha, can you hear me? Um, okay. Until she calls back in, uh, we're going to continue talking about uh, some of the these new age ideas that have are gaining popularity in Christian circles. And not none of the least of which are, are books that are popularized on television. So when uh, the the biggest example that I have experienced in my 
watching and watching television is a book and it, we will get back to that because we have Marsha back on the line. I think we uh, got disconnected somehow. We you did. Can I don't know. I'm sorry about that. I think phone dropped a call, but and I, it's only the second time that's ever happened, so I'm very uh, sorry about that. That's okay, all right. You can keep going. Okay. You can definitely keep so, going. The goal of Enneagram is to discover the true self, capital S, and this is the divine self because the belief is that we all have this hidden um, inner divine self, and it's the inner divinity, and the goal of the Enneagram is to uncover that. It's a journey to the true self. So this this is how the Enneagram was taught. This is the purpose of it, and these are all the ideas involved in using it. So, okay. uh, of course, we know in Christianity that we don't have an inner divine self. Only, only God is divine. Only God is God. Um, are there a lot of beeps going on? I don't know what that is. Uh, I hear a lot of There's beeping. a little static. I, I don't... A little cutting out, but that's okay. You're you're okay for now. All right. Okay. Um, All right. Another yeah. thing in the article. Another thing in the article um, that was concerning is that the writer of the article uh, refers to a man named um, Ponticus. I'm not sure how to say his name. Evagrius Ponticus. Okay, he uh, lived uh, like in the uh, fourth and fifth centuries, and um, she quotes him, and he is also used to support the ideas of the Enneagram. Now, here's what a lot of people don't know if they don't check it out. Ponticus was a Neoplatonist. That means that he he had some uh, Gnostic or Neo-Gnostic ideas mixed in with his Christianity, and he was actually condemned as a heretic. So Ponticus is not a good guy to go to for your theology, and yet she she appeals to him in her article. So there again is a, is another problem. And then she tries to say that the power in the Enneagram lies in its ability to expose the dark underbelly um, of every person, their sin pattern. So here comes the part where it's saying that the Enneagram can help uncover your sin pattern. Well, I really don't think we need the Enneagram for that. I think that <laughs> most people... Mm-hmm. Um, are aware of their sin patterns. Um, first of all, if you're a Christian, you certainly are aware of that, and the Bible teaches us what sin is. We know what sin is. Sin is always something that goes against God, some rejection of God, um, something opposing God in our will, and um, we know from the Bible what sin is. And as a Christian, we certainly, uh, God shows us, and I think we lost you again. And why don't we hit back? Oh, there you are. Yeah. Marsha? Okay. okay. Great. Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> okay, wonderful. Um, and one final point I want to make is that um, she mentions in the article that she apparently gets uh, daily emails from the Enneagram Institute. Um, you can sign up for these. Uh, at their website, and I wanted to point out the Enneagram Institute is completely New Age. It doesn't even try to be Christian. It is totally New Age. 
It supports Gurdjieff and his followers. Um, and so, the Enneagram Institute itself admits that the philosophy behind the Enneagram contains components from mystical Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Taoism, Buddhism, and ancient Greek philosophy, mm-hmm. um, including the Neoplatonists. So what I, I'm hoping that I was able to make the point um, uh, here that the things asserted in the Christianity Today article are ignoring... Uh, first of all, the true history of the Enneagram, ignoring its purpose, and pointing to two sources who promote heretical or non-Christian views as support for the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. Um, also, just from the point of view of the nine uh, numbers, how arbitrary they are, there's no basis for that. There's no need for the Enneagram to know what our sin is. And we should actually be using God's Word. We should filter who we are through God's Word, not through the Enneagram. It's an extra-biblical tool, and right. it's based in Gnostic and New Age teachings. Right. So that is Just, my final point on the whole thing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I know we're running out of time, but one last question is, what do you see as the attraction in kind of going um, instead of uh, I would say finding finding introspection through the Bible, we're finding it through New Age sources. Um, I think part of it is that when you do the Enneagram, it's all about you. You are not looking, um, you know, when you're reading about God's Word, it's really about God, even though you certainly can, uh, God's Word judges us and we become aware of our, you know, things that are wrong or we need help with. Um, but this focus on the Enneagram, it's an, it, first of all, it seems new, so it's a new, trendy thing, and that's appealing. And secondly, it makes you the focus, and it's all about you. And I don't care what people say or think, Christian or not Christian, we are still fascinated by ourselves, and we mm. still like to hear about ourselves. <laughs> that's just <laughs> the way we are. Everybody is like that. Everybody. And um, it's just part of our of our human nature. The, it's real fallen human nature, but it's very very human to be that way. And so I think that is the major appeal. Well, great. Well, we are out of time, unfortunately. Hopefully, we can schedule you back on this program uh, in the future and talk about more things. I know we could go for a long time talking about this issue um oh, yeah. unfortunately <laughs> we have to come back to it another time thank you so much marcia yes, for yes, uh joining hopefully. us today right marcia uh montenegro you, for Christian answers for the new age goodbye we'll talk to you again all right okay okay and i'm going to take a, a quick break really quick uh really quick break yes and we'll be back with our next guest Um, He's going to be talking to us a little bit about Augustine and a little history lesson with that. So stay on the line with us. If you have any questions, the number to call in is 760-542-3907. We will be right back.
back to Theology Matters with the Pelus. I am your guest host, Letitia Wong. I am also the host of True Life Fridays Radio, which happens tomorrow at this hour and this time and this radio station on Blog Talk Radio in the True Life True Radio Network. Sorry, that was a lot to say. And I invite everybody to come back tomorrow and listen to our live broadcast and where we talk about all pro life issues, true life issues and things that matter in life and death. We want you to know that we've got all our bases covered here on the True Radio Network. We talk about everything under the sun that is interesting from a Christian perspective and an ethical perspective. So please make True Radio, the True Radio Network a part of your listening life for your intellectual and spiritual health, hopefully. I hope that you like it. And on with me next is our next guest, um he is Dr. Sadler. He is here um as an influential philosopher and a Christian apologist and his specialty is on the 4th fifth century and St. Augustine or St. Augustine. Sorry, I say it differently in my head. That's why it comes out a little differently. And we'll please welcome him to our program. He's going to be talking about a lot of a lot of real heady stuff. We're going to get into some meat and some more meat, and I want to welcome you. Thank you, Dr. Sadler, for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on again. Um, and actually, you can say it either way, Augustine or Augustine. Um, <laughs> either English translation is fine. Uh, you know, his his name is a Latin name, so it doesn't really make any big difference, I think. So uh, what I want to do you know, after talking a little bit about um, why, you know, why Augustine matters and who this guy is, is lead us into looking at some of his arguments for, for God's existence. And he's not somebody who we usually bring up in this respect. You know, if you look at your textbooks, it's usually Anselm or Aquinas or, or you know, people like that who, who get brought right. up. So why is this guy coming up? And I'll, you know, I'll talk a little bit about that. But it's important to to note that um, he doesn't provide, you know, he doesn't provide them in the in the way that somebody like Aquinas does, where it's all in one chapter and you can knock it out very quickly. So I think that's part of why um, he hasn't made it into too many of the the textbooks. Um, so let's let's jump right in. And uh, a lot of people recognize Augustine right away because he is a uh, he is a church father who is very important both for Catholics and for Protestants. Um, not not really for Orthodox, but um, you know he's really one of the big heavy hitters when it comes to um, Christian not only theology but also philosophy. And he's this great bridge figure. That's part of what I like about him myself. I'm actually not uh, a specialist in in Augustine. I'm actually an Anselm uh, scholar. Uh, but you know, if you want to understand Anselm, you have to know a lot of Augustine as well, because he was—he's uh, the guy who. That's who, right. Yeah, Anselm credits him <laughs> as, as sort of his inspiration. But he's this this great guy who's in between um, the ancient period. He's really seeing the, the the end of it because Rome falls while he's while he's still alive, and he has to you know figure out what what what's going on with this. And he's one of the first medievals in many respects. So he's. Mm-hmm. Um, He's bridging two different worlds, or really two worlds that are that are overlapping with each other. And you know, in a, in a lot of respects, he's kind of an interesting 
uh, bridge figure in other ways, I think this is what attracts a lot of people to him because, you know, some people, their life of faith is, is relatively undisturbed and just grows nicely and develops and they have the right upbringing and, and all that. Now, Augustine, that's not his case at all, and that's not the case for a lot of the people, I think, who get into him. He, you know, he was a guy of extremes. So he had a mother who, um, you know, raised him in, in the faith and a father who was essentially a pagan. And then he, you know, he got sent off to school, and he had a good, typical Roman education. But he wasn't, you know, in Rome. He was, he was across the sea in North Africa. So it'd be sort of like, you know, here in the United States, we've got, you know, the people who see themselves as, as, as really, you know, the movers and shakers, and then there's the people living out in the provinces. Augustine would have been one of those province guys, and he always had his eye on, you know, trying to get to the big time. And so mm-hmm. he, he starts studying rhetoric, um, and he becomes a teacher, and he starts moving up. You know, he has an academic uh, existence where you you get better and better jobs. But the entire time, he's he's really shot through by this desire to be in touch with what really matters. And like a lot of people, I think especially in our culture, he's presented with all these different alternatives, you know, maybe it's um, friendship, maybe it's crime. You know, he actually, you know, has this account of stealing the pears and what was going on mm-hmm. with that. Sessions. Um, maybe it's, maybe it's sex, maybe it's uh, enjoyment of all sorts. Maybe it's a kind of monastic life without actually being a monk, or maybe it's even belonging to some, you know, what we nowadays call, call a sect or a cult, the Manichaeans, who were their own church in their own right. They, they, uh, they had quite an organization at that time. Um, and the whole time he's searching for answers. Now, you know, he's got sort of in his back pocket um, the faith that, that he received as a kid, um, and faith not in the sense of really believing in it, but faith in the sense of, well, this is what, you know, those people taught and and I suppose there could be something to it, but it takes him an awful long time to figure out that that's for him. And mm-hmm. he really has to put it to the test. And, you know, the whole book, of the, the full uh, first seven, eight books of the Confessions is about that. So he's somebody, I think, that those of us who um, had a sort of erratic journey into, into the faith or out of it and back into it can, can relate to pretty well because... Um, this is a guy who really understood, you know, where people go off and, and uh, what can bring them back. So, you know, after he does come back, he becomes, uh, you know, he's a very bright guy. So they, he, they put him to work on different different issues and different problems, and he jumps into a lot of controversies. And, and he writes an awful lot, and a lot of those writings, thankfully, get preserved um, through the early Middle Ages, and, and they have a, a massive influence on the development of Western Christianity. Um, and he leaves behind this whole legacy of uh, key works like the Confessions or mm-hmm. the City of God or on Christian doctrine. Um, the one that we're going to look at most today isn't one of those um, have-to-have-on-your-library-shelf kind of books, you know, make it into the, the great books classic series. It's it's a, a shorter book, um, but it's it's really quite 
fun to look at and to read. I use it in my classes, and it's uh, called On Free Choice of the Will. Um, and then we'll look at a few other ones as well. We'll look at some things from the confessions and you know a bit about on true religion because he's uh, he's developing an argument for God's existence in these that's that's really different than what you're going to see in uh, most apologetics or, or theology courses or philosophical uh, philosophy of religion courses or philosophical theology courses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. You know, if you think about um, how we organize our curricula when it comes to teaching about arguments for God's existence, whether we realize it or not, we're actually very scholastic in the sort of medieval, late medieval sense of the term, Um, whether we're Catholic or Protestant or, or, you know, even look at some Orthodox textbooks, um, and not to mention, you know, any sort of philosophy of religion textbooks that that are just put out there by with no religious commitment whatsoever, they're all done in a very scholastic manner where Mm -hmm. the emphasis is solely on certain arguments. And, you know, the idea is, well, we can isolate these, and if you can just convince somebody of the premises and the rules of inference, then you're going to reach the conclusion, and then, you know, uh, you do whatever you do with it, convert people or something like that. And, you know, the similar thing too with, you know, arguments against God's existence, like the argument from evil or, um, you know, other things. People think that, well, you just put together this philosophical argument and then get it out there and that's going to automatically, you know, sort of like um, flipping out a light switch in people's heads. And um, it doesn't really work like that, you know. Uh, You have to kind of you have to ruminate on these for them to, to have the, the effect that, that you want them to have. And usually, if you look at a philosophy of religion textbook, when they get to arguments for God's existence, there'll be words like ontological or cosmological or teleological. It'll always be some sort of allological, you know, thing, or pragmatic or moral. And none of these terms are actually used by the people who originated these arguments, uh, they're all right. they're all ways of, they're all ways of classifying them later on. So Anselm didn't have an ontological argument; he had an argument that you know was supposed to prove that God exists and a whole bunch of other things as well. Um, Thomas, you know, doesn't call what he's doing uh, cosmological arguments or arguments from design. That's that's later textbook writers who do that. But um, we've gotten accustomed to thinking that there's three or four or maybe five main ways of arguing for God's existence. So we talk about ontological arguments, you know, and there's different variants of those, you know, um, one of the popular ones these days has to do with, uh, modalities and possible worlds and that sort of business. Um, Anselm had something that I guess you can call an ontological argument if you really want to Thomas Aquinas, um, criticizes something like that. Descartes has one. And then, you know, you can move on to the other ones and say, well, you know, here's some cosmological arguments and and sometimes there's, you know, variants on those. But what happens is it's really bad history of philosophy or bad history of ideas because there are arguments that are provided for God's existence in classic texts that don't fit into these narrow schemas. Right. So Augustine, he's a prime example of that. 
But just to mention a few other people, um, Cicero, who's, who's a pagan writer, um, mm-hmm. he has a dialogue between uh, various philosophers of the time, and they, they thought you could come up with arguments for God's existence and also attack them. And the arguments that he provides, they don't fit in so neatly into that schema either. Um, same thing about Descartes, his argument that he provides um, in the meditations, the really knockdown argument, um, the non-ontological one, it's, it's kind of hard to figure out what we should even call it. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, sometimes we try to shoehorn it one into one side or we shoehorn it into another side, but really we need different categories for these. So the, the kind of argument that, that Augustine is making has sometimes been called the, uh, the argument from truth or the argument from eternal truths. Okay. And it's not an ontological argument, and it's not a cosmological argument, and it's not a design argument, clearly, uh, and it doesn't fit the other types either. Right. So you know, this is something that challenges um, the categories, you might say, that, that people are, are used to. So even people who are, you know, versed in, in, in apologetics but, but mostly got it through uh, some sort of uh, standard training, when they encounter Augustine, they, you know, they kind of throw their hands up. And like, what? I don't know what this is. I don't know what to make mm-hmm. of this. Right. So, yeah. Um now, so, um, go ahead. So, I wanted you to elaborate a little bit on what, what, how do we categorize them, and you know, what are they, and how do we categorize them? What are they? <laughs> well, like I said, usually there's about four or five main categories that people put them into. So, um, ontological arguments are supposed to be arguments where you begin from the idea of God and mm-hmm. somehow show that if you unpack that idea in the right way, um, God must exist. And it can, it's done in a lot of different ways. So you can you can try to talk in terms of um, God's essence, including existence, which is uh, what Descartes does with it. Um, you mm-hmm. can start out with God as that and which nothing greater can be thought, which is what Anselm does. Um, you can talk about God as uh, maximal being, or the greatest possible being, which is definitely not what Anselm does, by the way, because um, he actually criticizes his critic, Ganillo, for, for attributing that to him. But, but that's what modern right. defenders of the argument do. And so all of those arguments, they kind of, they think that you've got this idea, and if you just twist it the right way, you're going to see that it, it's a kind of idea, a very unique one, where whatever it is in that idea has to exist. So that's an ontological argument. And then cosmological arguments are based on uh, causality, on the notion of cause and effect, and having to trace causes back all the way. So, you know, if you think about it, what a cosmological argument really is, is um, it's the child why, you know, how kids are always asking, well, why is that? Why is that? Why is that? Right? Um, just uh, put into philosophical frameworks. So sure. you can say, you know, why why are we here? He said, well, you know, um, you have parents. Well, where did they come from? Well, they're parents, and you can't trace it all the way back forever. Um, mm-hmm. So sooner or later, you have to come up with a bigger story and say, well, you know, there was matter, and matter came together. Well, where did that come from? And, and so, if you're Thomas Aquinas or 
any of the other people who use that kind of argument eventually have to say, well, you know, there was a first cause or there was a prime mover or mm-hmm. there was mm-hmm. a necessary being, and that's what we call God. And then um, design arguments or teleological arguments, those were very, very popular in the uh, the 18th century. Uh, people wrote whole books, you know, just providing them, you know, uh, all sorts of natural history data to try to do that. Um, what they do is they look at the world and they say, there's order, there's design, there's some sort of clear intentionality to, to things, and there must be some cosmic designer who actually put that into to, uh, the fabric of the universe. Um, and Thomas Aquinas makes this kind of argument, and William Paley is very well known for his watch version of the argument. Um, then you have, those are really the big three, and then you have... Uh, versions of pragmatic arguments like Pascal's wager or uh, William James's uh, discussion in The Will to Believe, where if you don't believe, then you're kind of setting yourself up for either not finding out that your belief is true or making the wrong sort of choice. So you really should believe, not because you have some sort of, you know, rational argument in favor of it, but because things will turn out better if you if you do believe. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, there's a moral argument that Kant makes, because Kant says none of these are any good. Uh, we have to try another one. So his version runs along the lines of, you know, we know that life is not fair, um, but the way that we think about things requires us to think that being good or, or virtue is going to somehow correlate to happiness. And that could only be the case if there's some sort of being, um, you know, managing things, let's say, so that things turn out that way. So, therefore, God must be thought to exist. Um, mm-hmm. Now, you know, that strikes me as probably the worst <laughs> argument because, um, you know, it's it, there's a lot of things that, that are kind of sketchy about that one. But Kant mm-hmm. thought that that was the only one that we could we could still use. And, and it's interesting, too, because some of these arguments have their fans who say, well, this argument works and that argument doesn't work. Um, so Thomas mm-hmm. Aquinas, you know, attacked the ontological argument very famously, but said, you know, that's not the way to go. Let's do these instead, cosmological arguments, design arguments, or arguments from degrees of being. Uh, arguments mm-hmm. from degrees of being are another one that doesn't fit in well to that, that schema. Um, right. And it was very popular um back in, in uh, the ancient world, but we don't we don't do it quite so so much today. In part because um it's kinda like a vicious cycle. If if uh if a teacher only knows about um these five main kinds of arguments, they're only gonna teach those. And if they if they think that those are really the whole field, they're not going to bother going back to classic texts and seeing what's in there and finding other very interesting arguments for God's existence. So, yeah, that, that's sort of a summary of the lay of the land. Um, now, Augustine, he's not super concerned with providing arguments for God's existence. And the milieu that he's writing in is, you know, it's, it's rather different than our own. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the people that he's encountering, the question isn't, does God exist? It's rather, what is God like? Do the, do the Manichaeans have it right? You know, is God um, totally detached from the world? The world is evil. Um, God is out there somewhere and we have to get to him. Do the mm-hmm. pagans have it right? Are there a whole bunch of different gods or, um, you know, they're all sort of manifestations of something. Um, were the Jews right, you know, about the the nature of, of Christ? Um, they, you know, there's so much that Jews and Christians agree upon, but mm-hmm. that Jesus guy is really one of the sticking points, isn't it? So, right. I, I think it's a defining issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, most of the people that Augustine would be engaging with don't need to be convinced that God exists. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. it's even kind of funny that um, he would worry about it in the first place. But, you know, there, there were other people, um, other philosophers who, who dealt with that sort of issue as well. So, you know, he's well-read. He knows that, that people do this. So he, he builds in a few discussions of these in, in his, uh, his texts. He's much more interested in what can we actually say about God? What is, what is God really like? And he thinks that, um, and you see this in his own example, we, we often create sort of uh, phantasms or imaginary pictures of, of God that, that have to do a lot more with us, and they really don't have that much to do with, with God. And they can really screw us up, you know. If we think that God, for example, has to have a body, then um, there's all sorts of commitments that we're going to to make that will, you know, make us think that God is uh, changeable or, mm-hmm. or all sorts of other things. Or if we think that, um, you know, God, um, well, here's, a, here's an example. You know, did God create this world that we're in? Um, the Manichaeans would say, no, it was created by an evil, lesser kind of God that they called the Demiurge. Um, right. But if you think that he created this world, then, you know, you've got a lot of explaining to do. Mm-hmm. And so Augustine is interested in, in those sorts of things, and arguments for God's existence just kind of come come out of that as um, you know part of part of what you need to do along the way. Um, in the Confessions, he actually tells us that that he took God's existence as a given. He always he always thought God existed. He always thought even that God takes care of us. Sometimes he, he thought it more strongly. Sometimes you know more weakly but he never really abandoned it. And at the same time, you know, he's willing to say, you know, some people think that God doesn't exist, or at least they act like God doesn't exist. And he brings up the uh, the biblical fool, you know, who says in his heart that God doesn't exist in the Psalms. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when he's, when he's discussing that, he doesn't say, yeah, and that fool's like the, all, that, all those atheists out there, or all those people who think that they're too smart for religion, or, you know, because that's not going on in his culture. Instead, he says, yeah, you know, that's the sort of thing that the fool says in his heart because um, he, he's smart enough not to say it out loud because everybody's going to think he's a super fool then. Right. Um, or, you know, it's so impious that, that nobody will like this guy if he says that. So it really is a different, you know, cultural milieu that, that he's inhabiting. So then you might ask, well, why... Why worry about God's existence at all? Why, why does he write about this? And I think that, you know, it's, it's 
less to try to prove to an unbeliever that, that God exists and more to try to clarify where we fit in and what God is like and how God is connected to, to everything else. So mm-hmm. what you get out of what you get out of Augustine isn't so much a argument um that's supposed to culminate in now you should believe, you know. It's more um here's the here's the way things are. Here's the metaphysics. Here's here's where we fit into this and here's how God um sort of overshadows the entire piece. And now we come away knowing a little bit more, hopefully, after going through an argument for God's existence. And that mm-hmm. makes a lot like um, a, a very different um, modern philosopher, Hegel, who said that God, you know, arguments for God's existence, their job is not to convince anybody. Their, their job is to actually reveal to us what God is like. Um, so it's the same sort of idea there. Right, right. And so... So I mean, do people not understand that distinction and arg between a distinction between an argument for God's existence and an argument about God's existence? Because I I hear a lot of times people wanting arguments for God's existence and not finding them satisfactory, you know, in in Augustine's work and and kind of drawing a conclusion. Well, I guess maybe nobody has anything good to say about evidence for God's existence. Yeah, I mean, there are, there's an argument there uh, that's supposed to culminate in God existing. Um, it, and it's there most explicitly in on, on free choice of the will. But mm. um, I, I don't really know too many people who want to genuinely, either genuinely or polemically, you know, because some people, they, they want an argument, but they don't really want an argument. They just want to argue. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't see them usually going to Augustine. They usually, if they're not just, you know, going to some textbook or a website and trying to find a, a you know, bare bones version of it, they'll go to Aquinas or they'll go to um Anselm, or they'll go to a more contemporary author who's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like planting a. Um, now, you you mentioned a, a, a distinction between arguments for God's existence and arguments. Did you say about God's existence or about God's existence? Yeah. Yeah. Now that's kind of an interesting way to think about it, and th- this is a little bit of a. Um, digression, but that's that's okay, because this is a really interesting idea. If, if you're providing arguments for God's existence, presumably you're, you know, trying to put out there some sort of reasoning that somebody else, not just yourself, could find convincing and say, yeah, okay, I, I didn't believe that God existed or I was in doubt before, and, and now I actually do believe that God exists. Mm-hmm. If you were to if you were to have an argument about God's existence, you know, really what you're saying there is, let's say God does exist. That's that's fine. What kind of God is He? What does it mean for God to exist in the way that God exists? And it, it's pretty rare that somebody will actually say it like that. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. That's actually kind of a an interesting uh, way to put it. I kind of like that. Um, usually we talk about the divine nature, you know. We say, well, you got the, the 
you know, the existence of God, and we'll settle that over here. And then we've got discussions of the divine nature. Is God good? Is God just? Is God um, perfect? Is God immutable? You know, how mm-hmm. can God create a stone so heavy God can't lift it? Those are all arguments about God's uh, nature or discussions about God's nature. But really, if you think it through, it's not as if um, God first exists and then only afterwards has qualities or attributes or, or, you know, things that we can say about God. That's a very modern way of, and a very strange way of, of uh, looking at it that a lot of people do. They're, they're, you know, they say, before you tell me anything about God, prove that he exists. Right, you know? right. Yeah. Kierkegaard actually has a great um, remark about that, you know, saying, well, how would you know that uh, that is God that you're proving that exists in that case? You know, if you don't know anything about the thing that you're supposed to be proving the existence of and you totally detached it from all of its qualities or what what makes, you know, what, what kind of thing it is, mm-hmm. um, it becomes this very sterile intellectual exercise. So I really like this idea of talking about um, arguing about God's existence. You know, um, arguing is God, for example, both just and merciful at the same time. That's that's something that you can uh, create arguments about. St. Anselm does that in uh, mm-hmm. several of his works. And there, you know, you're talking about the way that God is. You're not just saying, well, you know, we've got this thing, we'll we'll call it God or G or whatever X out there, and we're going to prove that it's there. Because, you know, when you look at some of these arguments for God's existence, um, you know, Thomas Aquinas is a great example. If you look at the five ways, um, they all culminate in this, this claim, and that's what everyone calls God. But I don't know a lot of people who, you know, when they think about God, they think, aha, prime mover. That's what God is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's a bit more to the to the picture than that. Um, and there certainly was for Augustine. I don't, I don't think that when he was a kid he was thinking to himself, necessary being. Can I prove that there's a necessary being that not everything is contingent? Aha, I can. Therefore, <laughs> God exists. I mean, you know, it's it's so detached from um, from our our experience of things. You know, maybe with the fifth way, where it's about pro, you know, it's about providence and, and governance of the world. Um, there, there's a little bit more meat on the bones, um, but the first four ways are, are pretty abstract. Um, so yeah, that's a, a little bit of a long-winded digression there, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really do like that phrase, arguing about God's existence, as opposed to arguing arguments for God's existence. Oh, well, glad to be of service. <laughs> so should we um, jump into the, the arguments then? Sure. Um, analyze that up for us. We have plenty of time before we go into our Q&A portion. Uh, yeah, go ahead. So there's three versions, you could say, uh, of this argument. And where it's made the most uh, robustly, 
where, where he goes into the greatest depth and detail about it is in this work on, on free choice of the will, in, in book two of that specifically. And we'll look at that last because I think it's kind of useful to look at what he's doing in two other places. And it gives you some of the tools, but not all of them all at once. So the first one is, is in his work on true religion. And this is a book that he's, he's written um, really you know, around the same time as on free choice of the will. And in it, he's, he starts out talking about a lot of different um, you know, ways people go wrong. It's, about, it's called On True Religion because he's going to talk about, well, what's the true religion? And he's going to compare it against all the, uh, you know, the false alternatives of his time. So he talks about one major way in which we go wrong in our, uh, our religious comportment, our religious belief. And it has to do with worshiping something else in place of God. And when we worship something else in place of God, it's, it's because we do think that that's God. We've, we've got some sort of mistaken view about what God is. So, you know, what are the alternatives for that? Maybe it's a body. You know, there's mm -hmm. an idol, and we actually bow down in front of the idol. And, and Augustine says, well, that, that's, you know, pretty simplistic stuff there. Or mm -hmm. it could be a soul, or it could be some sort of phantasm. And the, the, the mistake with this stuff is that these are all changeable. And here we get one of the building blocks, one of the core ideas involved in, in Augustine's argument. And this is one of those metaphysical, you're either committed to it or you're not, sort of um, deciding points. So this is where some of the critics of the, the argument might say, aha, I don't accept that, and then the argument won't get off the ground. So it, it, here's the basic idea. It's better to be eternal than to be temporal, and it's better to be unchangeable, to be immutable, than to be changeable or, or mutable. So there's there's an order, there's a hierarchy, you could say, of mm -hmm. uh, of dignity or you know being better or worse. And this okay. is a very very common belief back in, in ancient times and, and medieval times. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's actually something that it's hard to get away from if you, if you, actually, if you observe the way people do think about things, um, things being eternal, things being long-lasting. There's something about that that we, we like. So Augustine says, if you're going to worship something, pick something that's actually eternal, something that's actually immutable. And so then he goes and he starts fleshing out this notion of, of hierarchy a bit more. He says, there's different degrees of excellence. And again, this is not something that Augustine himself is coming up with. You can find this in Cicero. You can find this in Plato. Um, Augustine himself was a Neoplatonist of, of sorts. He's a Christian Platonist. Mm -hmm. So like, like most philosophers of the, of the time, you know, most of these church uh, doctors were. Um, and, and part of what goes along with that is that there's this idea of a hierarchy of being or some people will talk about it as a, a ladder of being. And at the bottom are things like bodies. Just, you know, think about a stone, right? A stone, that's eh, good for some things, you know. If you want a paperweight, that's, that's really nice. But a stone doesn't do an awful lot other than just sit there and perhaps roll if gravity's working right or you could throw it at somebody, I suppose. But the stone doesn't throw itself at anybody. Mm -hmm. It just sits there. 
Then above that, you have living things. And now we have a kind of being that is much more complex, that is much more interesting, and in Augustine's view, better, greater. It has more being by being living than it does by being inert, just matter. And we can go up the the hierarchy that way. Um, Animals are living. Plants are living, too. How are we different than the animals, then? Well, for Augustine, it's because we have reason or, or intellect or understanding. We have a intellectual faculty. We don't just sense things. We are, you know, our dogs are very nice. Dogs uh, can be great friends to you, and you cuddle up with them and share all sorts of life experiences. But the dog doesn't actually think about the life experiences and, and say, I wonder if I should take pictures of these so I can keep them for the future. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, the, the dog never asks itself, am I a good dog or am I a bad dog? <laughs> you know, it may hear you say good dog or bad dog, but it doesn't puzzle about, you know, the meaning of its existence or <laughs> anything like that, you know. Um, and I, I suppose if we want to be really punny, we could say that a dog does worship because, you know, the word for the, the biblical word in, in the New Testament for worship, uh, you know, prokunesi actually means to, to be like a dog, to, you know, bow yourself down like a dog. And they'll do that mm-hmm. when you're feeding them, but, but they're not worshiping you. They're not, you know, they don't have the conception that you're a god or something like that. So right. their experience of, of reality is in many respects much more limited than, than our experience. We, we have reason, and we're able to think about things, and that puts us at a higher level of being than, than the dog is or the cricket or, you know, even, you know, perhaps uh, the great apes and the, the dolphins and all these other really super bright creatures that we, we want to say are, are very similar to us in this respect, at least for, mm-hmm. for, for Augustine. We're at a higher level. So we've got this notion now of um, a hierarchy. And he says the, the rational part of the soul, um, what does it judge itself by? And, you know, if you think about this, how do we actually arrive at judgments? If I was going to say, and he's, he's not using this as an example, but if I, if I was going to say, am I a good person? You know, I could go by my feelings. Well, I like to feel like I'm a good person, so I'm just going to decide I'm a good person. Well, that doesn't actually make it so. We all have experience of having deceived ourselves uh, in that way or knowing people who deceive themselves that way. We need some sort of standards, right, to settle that sort of thing? Sure. Or, you know, think about math. What's that? Uh, I'm just commenting, yes, we do. Um, Yes. Just keep going. Yeah. (laughs) Never mind. Okay. And you know you could say you could say the same thing about mathematics. You know, I mean, I, I can't say well I feel that two plus three equals eight because I'm, I'm not doing math anymore. I'm doing very bad math. So the standards mm-hmm. are something that are we use in reasoning, right? We 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 appeal to. They're sort of like we think of them as tools that we just have and we acquire them maybe in grammar school or something like that. But really, Augustine says. No, they're they're actually above us. They're actually greater than us. Consider, he says, the nature of any sort of scientific discipline, what he calls an art. Um, principles of order 
or symmetry or equality. It's our minds that know those. It's not our senses that actually pick those up because, you know, there really is almost no real symmetry in, in nature if we, if we look closely enough. But we, we perceive these, these uh, patterns, these standards, and these standards of truth. Now, where do those come from? Um, we're not inventing them. Now, this is, again, where, where a lot of modern people would say, oh, yeah, we just, we just invented them, you know, your argument's not going to work. But Augustine would say, well, I mean, if we just invented them, then they're not really standards at all, are they? They're mm-hmm. just standards here or standards there. They, they're not going to apply across the board, and they're not going to remain the same over time. Uh, and you're going to need some standards by which you can say that those aren't even really standards. So you just sort of kick the problem upstairs. You right. need some what he would call eternal truths. And they can't just come from us. So, and here's where where we start to get close to God now. Either the eternal truths are God, or there's something yet higher than them, and we'll call that God. But certainly, you know, it's it's going to be higher than us, and it's going to be something that is better and uh, it's not changeable the way our minds are. You know, we get things wrong a lot of the time. So this this is his, his argument that he's making in this one work. And this is really the basic structure of it. This is why we call it the argument from eternal truths, that um, there has to be some sort of standard by which we as creatures that are capable of reasoning and thinking things out actually make these kinds of judgments. Um and either that standard or the body of standards is God or God is something that's above that. And we can keep kicking the problem upstairs as much as we want. The point is that we're not going to find this in the world or the things of the world, and we're not going to find this in ourselves. So we find something that's greater than us, and Augustine says that's God. So God must exist is the, the conclusion there. But he's right. again, he's much less he's not so interested in whether, you know, you can go to the atheist and say, Aha, see, God exists. He's much more interested in well, what are those truths? Hey, what you know right, have right. I got have I got it right with respect to them or am I screwing up with respect to them? And so that that's a good launching point for looking at the confessions because the confessions, you know, the first seven, eight books is really the story of how I screwed things up over and over and over again, and even screwed it up when I thought I thought I was finally getting it right. Um, and he's got this beautiful discussion in there in book seven, where um, you know he's talked about the problem of evil and how he how he misconceived that for a while, mm-hmm. and then he talks about um, having this intellectual experience where he realized essentially the same thing that he just talked about in that proof, but but in a, in a less discursive way. He looks at the things of the world, and he perceives that creatures are changeable and that things owe their, their being to God. And now he's really happy because he's got a, a solid conception of God. Um, and then he invokes, you know, St. Paul. And he, he's, it, Paul is, is kind of, um, you know, in some respects, he's kind of a, a good... Uh, guidepost. Um, whenever we think that we can't possibly prove that God exists, there's Paul to say, you know, look at the visible things of the world. Uh, those tell us about the invisible things, don't they? And so mm-hmm. Paul is saying that nat- natural theology is possible. And Augustine says, well, that's that's nice. 
Um, but he's not so interested in, in that as such. He says, I'm interested in the fact that everything else is changing, but truth has to be unchanging. There has to be a true eternity of truth, as he puts it, above the changeable mind. And he has a kind of intellectual um, aha moment. I'll actually you know, read what he, what he says, and this is from uh, the Confessions. He says, um, My own mind, my reason, cried out, the unchangeable was to be preferred before the changeable. Uh, it also knew that unchangeable, which unless it had in some way known, it could have had no sure ground for prefer, preferring it to the changeable, meaning that even though our minds are changeable, we're able, and this is the, the dignity of, of human beings, we're able to perceive something above us. We're able to perceive that there, there are these standards of truth that we have to appeal to. And then he says, um, thus with a flash of a trembling glance, it arrived, meaning my mind, at that which is. So he, he understood things metaphysically. And then I saw your invisible things understood by the things that are made. Then he says, I was not able to fix my gaze on them and my infirmity being beaten back. I was thrown again on my old habits and all I carried along with me was a loving memory of this. So it's really an interesting passage because, mm -hmm. you know, again, we often think, you know, when we have these arguments for God's existence that they should be as objective as possible. There should be nothing of the person in them. And, you know, you just make the argument, just premises and conclusions, you know, just the facts, ma'am, sort of thing. And mm -hmm. this will actually convince somebody. And, and nobody is, is convinced by, by those sorts of things. It's only when it becomes personal. When, and I'm not, I'm not saying that it becomes purely subjective as a result, but only when a person can sort of grasp how um, this means something and how they fit into it and the fact that there, it's not really about the proof making itself uh, okay for the person. It's more about the person realizing that the proof works and that it also tells us something about where we fit into it. At least that's the case mm -hmm. with certain kinds of arguments. And so uh, Augustine is, is having that kind of experience. And notice that he says, um, all I had of it was a loving memory. What preserves it in, in, in memory is not just the, uh, you know, I can run my mind through the steps. It's, it's the, the force of, of feeling, of affectivity, of, of love, of agape or caritas in his case. Mm -hmm. So that's something, you know, that's an interesting little interlude there. And then when we turn to this um, honestly choice, now he's actually got a dialogue going between him and his really smart pupil, Evodius. <laughs> and he, he tells Evodius, um, you know, they're discussing really other, other questions like, um, is having free will a good thing, or did God screw up by giving it to us? Which is a, a very interesting question. <laughs> it's all right. right. But yeah. um, along the way, um, Augustine says to Evodius, you're certain God exists, right? And Evodius says, well, you know, I believe it on faith. Um, I can't see it through direct perception. And then Augustine says, yeah, but what about the fool in Scripture? What if, what if that guy was here? What would you actually say to him? And Evodius kind of hems and haws a bit, 
And then Augustine says, let me give you something that would work for you. And here he says something that um, is, is really adding something new to the mix. He says, Evodius, you know that you exist, right? And Evodius says, well, yeah, of course. And Augustine says, no, no, think about that for a second. If, if you doubted whether you exist, then you'd have to exist, right? Because who's doing the doubting? Right. And Evodius says, oh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't think of that. And, and you notice, you see there um, the, the sort of prefiguration of Descartes' cogito ergo sum, um, which is actually coming from follower, you know, ergo sum. If I if I uh, if I doubt, I, I must exist. If I if I err, I must exist. So then he says, "You're alive, right?" He says, "Yeah, of course I'm alive." And then Augustine says, "Now notice." You're understanding this stuff, right? And he says, yeah. So you're understanding that you understand. And he says, oh, yeah, okay. So now we've already got these three um, levels of the hierarchy laid out. And he says, so we've got existence, life, and understanding. So a stone exists, an animal lives and exists, and you understand and live and exist. So... We've got this uh, laid out, and he does a similar thing with the senses. Um, I'm going to sort of skip over that because we don't need to worry about that, other than the fact that what's doing the understanding is reason. And reason is able to distinguish between itself and everything that, that's beneath it. And mm-hmm. so Augustine says then, um, can we find anything that's higher than reason in, in our nature? And Bogotá says, no, not, not in our nature. And here's again where a modern might go a very different way. Um, they might say, well, all there is is our nature. That, that's all we can actually perceive of things. But, but Augustine, you know, he, he doesn't think that's the case. He thinks that um, we appeal to these standards, and they're higher than, than our reason. So he says, mm-hmm. if you can find something that you're certain not only exists, but is also nobler, better, or higher than our reason, would you be willing to call that God? And Evodia says, well, uh, I don't know. Um, If I could find something better than the best in my nature, I wouldn't necessarily call it God. I I would like to call that which is above my reason God. Uh, I would not like to call that which is above my reason God, but rather that which is at the top, that which is above everything else. Because if it's mm-hmm. not at the top, let's not, you know, let's not call it God. Let's call it something else. And so um, Augustine says, okay, well, what could that be like? What, what could be above our reason? It's got to be something that's eternal and unchangeable. Do we have anything like that? And so... They start thinking about it, and they have a couple examples that they use. One is the uh, the, the laws and and uh, orders of, of mathematics, and or number rather, he says. Um, and then the other is the virtues. Interestingly enough, he says that there's there's a, a kind of wisdom involved in each one of the virtues. And so, if I'm a just person. I have justice within myself, but I'm just in accordance with some sort of standard of justice. And that standard is eternal. It can't change all the time. And it has to be, um, has to be something that would survive even if I'm gone, even if everybody else is gone. 
So where could that possibly be? And he says, um, do we have anything like this? Yeah, we, we make judgments by this all the time. Now, what's the relationship of our, our minds to these eternal truths? Clearly, they're, they're not below our mind, because if they were, then we would be judging the eternal truths, but we judge other things using them. Are they the same level as our minds? Well, they can't be, because they're not changeable. And if they, if they were on the same level as us, they'd be changing all the time, right? Because we're, look at us. I mean, we, we think one thing one moment, and then we think another thing the next moment, and then we say, aha, I was wrong. We only right. do that because we have, we, we have the eternal truths that we can use as a standard and rely upon over time. But they're not really over time. They're rather, they're through all time. So they have to be above us. And so here's where he says, well, remember when we said that if there was anything above us, we would say that that thing is God or there must be something better than that that's God. So Vodia says, yeah, I I remember that. Um, So Augustine says, well, there you go. God exists. And there's a lot of back and forth and sort of shuffling through the pages because he had some funny passages. Um, ah, here we go. You know, he says, uh, he doesn't just say, there you go, God exists. Now we're done. Let's all go home. He says, um, embrace this if you can and enjoy it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of an aesthetic experience rather than just a, a purely rational experience. And so he says, he concludes, God exists, and he exists truly and supremely. We not only hold this, I think, by our faith, by certain, but also attain to it by a sure, though very feeble, kind of knowledge. And that's where the argument ends. And then they move on to other things like, you know, is is free will a good thing, or did God, you know, kind of mess up by by giving it to us, uh, which is an interesting question. Um, but that's that's giving the uh, the proof, and like I said, this is not going to fit in very well if you try to shoehorn it into an ontological argument or a cosmological argument or or a design argument because it's really mm-hmm. not that kind of argument. It's right. saying if we want to try to boil it down, it's saying that eternal things are better than non-eternal things, mutable things that change. And we are able to recognize by having rationality that there's like a hierarchy of existences and we're able to make judgments about this because we use something that is eternal, which is therefore above us. And either that thing itself or that body of eternal truths is, is God or God is, you know, whatever is higher than that. If you want to add more and more things in there, you could add a whole bunch of different levels, I suppose. You know, if you're really mm-hmm. into uh, trying to chart out all the eternal truths in relation to each other, whatever's at the at the apex is going to be God. Right. Um, that's I I can I'm trying to find. Yes, it does. You're right. It doesn't fit into any of the other categories that we could typically find arguments for the existence of God. And this is more of the kind of argument of, uh, in I want to say, kind of introspective, kind of thinking about your reasoning, metacognating about God's existence, 
those type of uh, arguments because um, by comparative comparison of what is the best, a little bit like the ontological argument, what is the best possible uh, things we can think about, and you know that by definition would be where we would place God's existence or a, a characteristic of God. Um, yeah, it's very hard. I find it very hard to put into words, um, kind of a category that would sum up those that type of argumentation. Um, well, and it, it's not necessarily an argument either. I think it's just a line of reasoning. Yeah, and it's it's fine that it doesn't fit into the sort of traditional mm-hmm. five categories because those five categories aren't all the categories. There's also right. arguments for God's existence based on the degrees of being, like Thomas's uh, fourth way or Cicero has mm-hmm. an argument like that. Um, and that doesn't fit in there as well. And Descartes' argument it's in, in Meditation 3, it's very difficult to say what, what we should make of that. Um, and then there's some, some not particularly good arguments that also don't don't fit in there. Uh, but, you know, like the argument from, from uh, common consent, eh, you know, they, they mm-hmm. really liked that one back in the ancient world, but I don't think, I don't think it flies in a... Uh, uh, a world where we don't have commons consent anymore, uh, right. but, it, but it doesn't fit into any of those other categories either. So what that shows us is that if we're going to do philosophy of religion, we probably need to create better textbooks that are that are more right. faithful to the range of um, of arguments out there. And there are there are some that that, that do that, but you have to kind of work to find them, unfortunately. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, this is fascinating as a matter of historical study, studying the philosophy of religion, and um, in a textbook, in a classroom. And I'm coming back to a question that I've had in my mind, is, and, and you've touched on it a little bit, is about the modernist understanding of of these arguments. How would a person who is, has a more modernist thinking, now, you know, in our in our in our culture and society today, we very much take that modernist point of view of argumentation, and and Augustine seems to be relegated to a histor- history textbook, uh, yeah. philosophy religion textbook, because none of his arguments seem to carry a lot of uh, I what's the right word uh, a lot of regard, I guess. Yeah. In our well, they're all, in our modern way of thinking. He really only has one argument. It's the same argument just made in, mm-hmm. in three different places, this argument from eternal truths. And there there are some some points in it where somebody who has um one or another of different sort of very, very modern uh commitments because every viewpoint is not just sort of a neutral viewpoint, it's a set of commitments, where they're going to say, yeah, I don't accept this, so your argument has to fail. One of them would be this whole hierarchy of being idea um, that it's better to be living and it's better to be rational than living and, um, you know, things that are eternal are, are, are even better than things that are that are not eternal. Mm-hmm. I think I think that a lot of um, people would say, well, first of all, I don't even understand what you mean by by better in that case. Um, sometimes mm-hmm. I think they're right. kind. Of, 
I think they're kind of posing because they always do have some idea of what what's better. You know, if they want to make the universe better because it's more basic or something like that. They're just sort of dropping the levels down and saying it's a different hierarchy. But um, I mean, they could contest it and say, well, I, you know, I, I I just don't buy that living is better than bare existence or being rational is better than than living. And they might also say, you know, hey, Augustine. Are chimps rational? <laughs> are, are dolphins rational? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is there is there a continuum here that you have to worry about? But you know, I, I think that he'd probably say no, um, and and you could make arguments for that. But but notice then you need arguments to support arguments, and it starts to get very convoluted and complicated. The other mm-hmm. weak point where somebody would probably attack this argument um, would be. This, this notion that Augustine has that we judge of everything, including our, our own rational processes, by means of these eternal truths, and these are not within us. These are things that we sort of participate in by by using them. He, he's got this um, this great example of, uh, you know, it's when when I know something, when I have a bit of knowledge, it's not the same thing in my head as what's in your head, but it should look pretty similar. Um, and we're both participating in the same knowledge that's that's something outside of us uh, by, by having that knowledge ourselves. And it's not like a, a piece of fruit where if you put your hand on this part, I can't put my hand on that part. We can both share the same thing. Um, we can equally enjoy it. You know, we can hold on to it as long as we keep it in our minds. Now, I think that some modern people would say um, it just isn't like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're a nominalist, see, see, Augustine is a Platonist in this respect. Um, like, you know, like most of the early church fathers were, um, he he believes that there are things like Platonic forms. And they do exist independently of us, and they exist in the mind of God. And mm. when we when we understand them, or when we judge by them, we're in a certain way. He's got this whole illumination theory, we're being illuminated by God. And I think that there's a lot of modern people who say that's not that's not how knowledge works. So if if you have a you know a nominalist conception of of things, then uh, this is just isn't going to get off the ground um, right. when because you know it, it wouldn't be much of an argument from eternal truths if somebody says, "Well, I just don't accept there are eternal truths that exist independently of you and me." Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, well, that then becomes the, that then becomes a little bit of a hard to defend position. It becomes almost self-refuting after a while because then you can ask. How many of these self, these um, it, how many of these truths that are dependent on yourself? That uh, I mean, I'm I'm not saying it right. Um, but, <laughs> um, you're saying you're saying that the how opposition many, to it would become softer. Right. Shooting. Well, th- when when we have when we have a skeptical culture that kind of questions some of these um, historical ways, you know, Augustinian type of uh, argumentation, which I think I, I find a lot of value in. Uh, it's just not the same type of um, focus that our 
are tend to be are that we tend to have today in our culture. Um, but they tend to be they our culture tends to challenge uh, Augustinian thinking here by wanting yeah. objective wanting more and more objectivity, which is not a bad thing. But then it it's almost self refused to the point of too much skepticism and too much uh, asking for things to the point where you're giving up all the, all of your philosophical tools and where you're asking, if you say there's no such thing as an objective uh, truth outside of myself, well, then that's a very self-refuting thing to say. I mean, there comes a yeah, point... How are you going to make how are you going to make that case to somebody else other than by appealing to something that can't just be uh, I feel so or I said so or the truth is within me? Um, yeah, I mean that that will get you that can get you. Well, Augustine might be wrong and the skeptic might be wrong, but it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't yeah. already get you to Augustine's right, you know. Certainly not, not to the skeptic, because the skeptic then can like be an ultra skeptic and say, "Well, I just don't know anything now. I, I don't know if my position that I had c- can work. I don't know if Augustine's can work. I just don't know at all." Which is, mm-hmm. well, I, 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 I don't think. Like that. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I don't think I don't think they stay like that for long, though. You know, I, it's a very uncomfortable position to sit in for a long time, isn't it? I it, it well it typically only you know presents itself when we are talking about issues of faith and reason and whether or not they should consider the claims of Christianity to be true um they become very hyper skeptical and yeah, i that's i find true. this from a lot of philosophers or or those that like to study philosophy that there is no amount of argumentation that uh, even cracks part of the skepticism where they say well yeah maybe <laughs> Maybe there's some validity to that. Maybe I should, in either any in any sense. Um, but I find that the most skepticism towards medieval Christian philosophy comes from, you know, the modernist skeptic. Yeah, and sometimes there's just this prejudice that um, we actually we actually call it um, in critical thinking the the argument from novelty that. Mm. Um, Previous ages, you know, clearly they didn't know what they were doing. So if it's from a previous age, it can't possibly be worth looking at or can't possibly be right. Um, I, I do see an awful lot of that among my colleagues in philosophy because they they don't usually spend a lot of time really studying um, the history of philosophy. They'll, you know, they'll read a bit of stuff and just enough to be able to say, well, I, I took a look at it and that didn't move me. So I'm going back to reading whatever 20th century person, you know, happens to be the mm-hmm. Vogue at the time. Um, but I, I think that's, that's, I, I suppose that's less of a complaint about philosophy and more a complaint about um, the people who are doing it. Then you know, they're just not, they're not doing philosophy the way they ought to be if they, they really want to take the, the discipline seriously. But there mm-hmm. are, unfortunately. You know, it's, it's, this is, again, total digression. But So, you know, as somebody who teaches philosophy, um, I would get into conversations on the bus or on the subway, you know, at restaurants, 
especially if I carried a book around and people asked me what I was reading. And they would want to know, you know, what do I do for a living? And so I would say, well, I'm, you know, I'm a philosophy professor. Or, you know, I teach, teach philosophy or pick whatever version of that you like. And so immediately about half of them would say, yeah, you know, I took a philosophy class once because they had gone mm-hmm. And it was awful. I didn't learn anything. <laughs> the teacher was terrible. He was dismissive. Um, and, you know, I'll say, well, I'm really sorry that was your experience. You know, it was usually an intro to philosophy class or an ethics class or a critical thinking class. And after enough of those experiences, I started thinking to myself, well, why, you know, is it is it just that the public doesn't like philosophy and maybe, you know, these philosophy professors were really doing a good job and it's just not for most people. And I kind of thought that at first, this kind of elitist conception of it. But after a while of teaching, you know, these service courses, intro to philosophy, ethics, you know, um, to, to, to undergraduates who had to be in those classes were definitely not going to be philosophy majors. And then having them at the end say, oh, yeah, this is a great class. I got a lot out of it. I started to realize that it had to do with how it was being presented. Mm. And there were really two main issues um, and again, I know this from my own experience because I used to be kind of a jerk with respect to this with the first one. So <laughs> there's this, you know, there's this feeling when you first start teaching that because uh, you're coming out of graduate school where you've been studying this stuff, you know, and it's very high level and very interesting. And now you're being like thrown down into the mail room, you know, and you have to work your way up the, the institution. And so you're going to teach right. the undergraduates who, you know, you're stuck with them in these classes. And there's there's sort of a sense of um, how I'm casting my pearls before a swine. And <laughs> boy, you know, if you have that attitude, I think it generally shows through. Mm, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, and then and then they're like, well, if philo- all I all I know about this philosophy thing is it turns you into a jerk, like this guy up here teaching this stuff. And you know, I, I've seen a lot of, um, especially younger colleagues, uh, doing that. And then the older colleagues sometimes get burnt out. They may have started out being really nice after years and years of undergraduates who aren't particularly. Um, you know, interested in it, they say, ah, I'm just, you know, just going to do a, a routine up here and get through it. But the other thing is, um, you know, if you actually do the work to come up with good examples to make this sort of thing accessible to to ordinary people who are interested in it, um, you can teach Augustine, you can teach Plato, you can teach um, even Hegel to undergraduates who are not going to be philosophy majors, and they, you know, they're not going to come away with a uh, uh, understanding that's, you know, very deep and broad or anything like that. But they'll come away with something, and if you give them things that they can actually use in it, because these guys wrote books because they thought people could actually use this knowledge. If you can communicate that to them effectively, then um, they see the usefulness in, in philosophy, and then they'll go on and study it some more themselves. So, you know. I think that part of what's really gone wrong with the way that we, we approach philosophy is we've got a lot of philosophy teachers out there who really don't want to teach. Hmm. And, um, or they, they only want to teach the, the, the majors and the graduate students. They don't want to teach the, the general population. Uh, and, you know, that's a great recipe for philosophy remaining uh, 
pretty marginalized and and not being much useful to anybody. Imagine if like a car dealership, you know, like like a Ford, suddenly said, um, "We're only making cars for NASCAR drivers," because they're the ones who are really serious about about you know car business. We'll make mm-hmm. we'll make that for them, and we'll make it because Ford has you know a lot of a lot of police vehicles. We'll make it for them, and we'll make it for police. But everybody mm-hmm. else, we'll let them buy the car. As a matter of fact, we're going to require them to buy the car, but we're not going to service any of them. You know? <laughs> How would that right. go? Right, you know? right. People would be like, you know, well, Fords, they're, the, they're the, the worst things out there, you know? Right. They're great, yeah. if, you, they're great if you're a cop, but uh, if you're an ordinary Joe and, and you can't get an oil change, you know, and the engine blows up, it's not a very good car at all. So, you know, right. philosophy is in a very similar circumstance, I think, with a lot of the people who practice it. Right. Um, again, total digression. <laughs> that's all right we we could i mean i'm thinking it's opening up a whole another door of of line of questioning and we could do that but uh let's uh but we can richard let's go ahead and go back to uh the things that we had listed earlier um to to get to that and if we have some extra few minutes at the end we can talk about um you know people's appreciation of philosophy <laughs> go back to talking sure. about that um and you had talked about um, the one that I find really interesting is that you listed a God as truth itself, a divine attribute, and also a person. I find that fascinating because not even a lot of you know Christian thinkers could uh, kind of consider you know what. Yeah, so I mean, there is that passage where where Christ says, "I am the way, I am the truth," right? So there there would be yeah. a, a warrant for it, so to, so to speak. But, but yeah, a lot of people. I think they don't know what to make of that, and so they just kind of, eh, that sounds great, but now we'll get back to, to, to the other stuff that we're interested in. But for the early Christians, um, it mattered that truth was sort of like truth with a capital T, that truth was, was something that had, if you want to think of it as sort of like a, uh, a pyramid, it had a point to it where everything came together. And... If you know when we're talking about God and we're talking about the divine attributes, so things like truth or justice or, or unity, um, one thing that the the church doctors agree on is that God doesn't have attributes. God is the attributes. So God doesn't. If we take justice, I think that's an easier one to get our heads around. God doesn't have justice. It's not like there's a standard of justice above God that judges God and God measures up to it or God doesn't measure up to it. God is justice itself. And everything that we perceive as instances of justice are in some way shadows or at best, you know, uh, copies or participations in, in that divine justice. And it's the same way with, with truth. Um, you know, we we talk about things being true. Like it's it's true to say that I'm 44 years old uh, right now. It won't be true mm-hmm. a year from now. And it's it's not true to say that I am uh, a seven foot tall woman, right? Because I'm I'm not. I'm a six foot three guy. Right. Um, and we understand truth in that sense. We understand the truth of what we call truth of propositions, or, the, or also the truth of thoughts. You know, if I have a conception of, um, 
you know, what the studio that you're in looks like. I think the walls are green, and I imagine that to myself. Well, that, that's either true or it's false. It's probably false, right? I'm guessing. The gods uh, my good, walls but, aren't but, green, no. <laughs> well, there you go. So, so there's there's some other color, and we you know we can we can understand truth in that sense more easily than we can understand what it would mean to have truth with a capital T that encompasses and makes all the other truths in some way what they are. And but that's a thought that these guys were working with all the time, and it gets even cooler for Christians because truth is not just sort of a, a body of formulas or, or ideas or something out there the way they were for Plato. It's something personal because you actually have a God who, you know, talks, who, who engages, mm-hmm. who who has a will, who has uh, – now, of course, you know, God's will, not quite the same thing as our will. There's a whole bunch of complicated theology there that, that we don't want to necessarily – go into, but just sort of, you know, wave our hands at. But, um, yeah, the, this notion that eternal truths of, say, mathematics or the eternal truths of what it is to be a good person, the the, the virtues, prudence, justice, courage, and, and wisdom, are yeah. somehow in God. And they're not in God like ideas are in our head. They're part of the very fabric of what God is, and God shares them with us. So Augustine will talk about truth himself communicates this to us. Truth takes a sort of, instead of truth being something that we place in front of ourselves and treat as a passive thing that we can talk about, truth is something that actively engages us mm-hmm. from this this uh, Christian, you know, early Christian uh uh, admittedly, intellectual perspective. I, I'm not, I, you know, I, I don't want to make the claim that that all early Christians were were doing high level theology or anything like that. Some of them right. were trying to try try to live a good life. You know, Augustine actually talks about uh, old women who uh, know more about faith, hope, and charity than most theologians and have mm-hmm. never read the scriptures because they've actually lived them out and learn the lessons of what faith, hope, and charity, especially charity, uh, mean. You know, they've they've made them part of the fabric of who they are. Um, but, you know, the fact that we do have these great Christian thinkers like St. Augustine or Justin Martyr or uh, John Chrysostom or, you know, people like that, thinking these these amazing thoughts out, that somehow truth would communicate itself to us, not just be something that we communicate about, not just be a possession that we have and can dispose of as we want to, but something that imposes uh, responsibilities on us and judges us. Um, that's really kind of mind-blowing, you know. That that really transforms one's perspective to think about things right, in those terms. Right, right, right. Um... I like to. I had always liked to think about about truth and these attributes of God that we talk about, um, as they are. And this is probably not the correct theological language for this at all. But God just kind of personifies all these things. I wa- almost wanted to say embody, but that would be true in the case of Jesus. Uh, embodies yeah. these characteristics, these attributes. 
apart from him, they would actually just kind of be abstractions that we would never be able to see. Like, who can see? Yeah, I think that's completely correct. Um, I don't think there's anything uh, imprecise about that at all. That's actually a good way to, to put it. I mean, it's, it's sort of a hypothetical, right? If, 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 God, if God didn't exist, then mm-hmm. just would just be something abstract. But God does exist, so, so you know, that's, that's not going to be the case. But you know what else goes along with this? If we want to really understand what truth is, um, somewhere along the line, we actually have to start taking cues from God. Same right. Thing if we want to understand what wisdom is or, or justice. Right. And, and the, minute that we, the minute that we think that we've figured it all out, <laughs> that we know exactly what justice is, uh, we're, we're probably off track because that would mean that somehow you've got all of God inside of your head. You know? Right. And that's just not going to happen. Um, so we always have something more to learn. And I mean, that's the bad news in a way, but the good news is that we have a reliable teacher who's not going to screw us around or, or, you know, say that the lesson will be on this thing and then show up and lecture on something totally different. (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for um, just the wealth of information and the wealth of of history that you and philosophy that you've brought to us today. I have to end this show just a couple minutes early to uh, catch my next appointment, but I want to thank you so much uh, for your time and your efforts. I know that um, you have been a previous guest, and I hopefully you will come back in a, another time, and we can do this again with a lot more information. Yeah, sounds good, and I'll, I'll I'll listen to your show and see what what's uh, going on on Friday nights as well, because that Thank sounds pretty you. interesting. Thank you very much. Yes, yeah, so everybody, this is Dr. Um, Sadler, and um, this is Theology Matters with the Pelus, and it's on every Thursday on the True Radio Network. Um, please join us tomorrow for True Life Fridays Radio with myself and my co-host Thomas Smith, and sometimes Melissa is with us too, and she gets a, uh, grabs a moment. And so I want to thank you everybody for joining us tonight, and have a great weekend. If uh, if you are not joining us tomorrow, but if you are, hey, listen live. It's going to be great. Have a good night, everybody, and we'll see you next time.